Welcome to the After School Podcast. Today I'm chatting with Sophie Hagney, class of 2012. After Exeter, Sophie took a gap year before studying at Yale. Now she's a freelance writer, reporter, and critic. She writes most frequently for the New York Times, but she has contributed to The New Yorker, New York Magazine, The Atlantic, The Economist, The Boston Globe, and many other publications. She writes on a variety of topics, but focuses mostly on art and culture and technology. Currently, she is finishing her master's in American literature at Cambridge, her dissertation focusing on interior space and privacy in Edith Wharton's fiction. We talk about her path to becoming a freelance reporter and her experiences in journalism. We discuss her love of reading and some of her favorite books. And we go into depth on Edith Wharton and her importance as a novelist. Finally, we do a little reflection on Exeter's English department and how it's affected Sophie's approach to literature and academia. I really enjoyed catching up with Sophie, and I'm excited for you to hear it. So without further ado, here's Sophie Higney. Sophie, how you doing? Hey, Ryan. Uh, I'm good. It's um, beautiful where I am, actually. You're in London, right? Yeah, I'm in London, and the days are getting insanely long. Um, Mm. It stays light here, like, way later than the East Coast of the U.S., which is a fun fun element of the U.K., so I'm just, I'm looking out at my porch um, at the the lengthening evening light. And you're over there because, why, You're, you're studying at Cambridge, right? Yeah, well, not so much at Cambridge anymore. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've been here. So I've been here for a year in grad school studying English at Cambridge, and campus shut down uh, like beginning of March. So since then, I've been in London, and I had been spending time in London for like the the year and a half before. Also, my boyfriend lives here. I was for a while kind of like splitting time between New York and London, but now I'm. Now I'm here for kind of the foreseeable future, which is like two months now. I'm probably not going to get on an airplane for a while mm. because of the pandemic <laughs> stuff. Yeah, that's... Um, so yeah, I, I think I'm likely to be here at least for another year or so. Um, and then who knows? With your job, I mean, as being a writer um, and reporter and all that, you can probably be in really anywhere, right? Like to some degree terms of remote work it's probably one of the best areas to be in for that yeah i know i'm sort of joking with people like my work life has not changed at all like between grad school and freelance journalism everything is exactly the same i mean there is there is the drawback that you can't like report in person which is it which is a bummer but it is not hard for me to work from wherever which is one of the great things about this life so maybe we start there then and back up a little bit. I mean, I'll have introduced you before this, just to give a little overview of, of what you do now. But really, what have you been up to since 2012, I guess? Since 2012? Um, yeah, I guess so the year after I graduated, um, I took a year off between high school and college. So that was 2012. I did a lot of traveling, um, a lot of reading and writing and like reflecting. It was an amazing year. A weird year because all my friends were sort of in college and I was bouncing around and kind of adrift, a very adrift year. Yeah, so I started at Yale in the fall of like 2013. Um, and while I was there, I studied English, so kind of building on a lot of the interests that I had when I was in high school. Um, and I got involved with you know, a bunch of other stuff on campus. I worked for the weekly newspaper, the Yale Herald. Um, kind of an underdog newspaper, <laughs> uh, ultimately ran out of money during my time there. And also for a magazine called The New Journal, I ran a storytelling group on campus. But it really, yeah, definitely became interest, more interested than I had been even in journalism and ended up working after my junior year at the Boston Globe on the arts desk um, as an intern, which was like probably the best job I will ever have because no jobs like it exist anymore but I basically wrote like two 800 word stories a week about things going on in the cultural scene around Boston 
and it was great. <laughs> why, why do you say that's not, you said it doesn't really exist anymore, just for financial incentives of, of papers? Yeah, I mean, it was just one of those things, like when I was working at the Globe, it's changed even since I was there, but they were still kind of figuring out like digital news cycles. And so they weren't having me like run on a bunch of fast breaking news or, or doing like short digital stories about like internet trends. It was still a very kind of old school newspaper features job, which just meant like they would send me to some concert or to meet some chef and I would like interview them and take like two days to write an 800 to 1200 word story. So just in terms of like the time that I had to work on things and also the like kind of slowness and lack of news influence um, made it, I think a little bit anachronistic, but a really great job. That sounds amazing. Um, so after, yeah. So after that, I was an intern at the New York times also on the arts desk, which was amazing, but really different. It was like, pretty fast paced, a lot of news. And I got to work on not so not, I wouldn't necessarily call it like investigative reporting, but some like harder hitting kinds of stories. Um, like I reported on the first Cosby trial. Um, I wrote a story, I wrote a story about a woman who had been raped by Roman Polanski, um, who was sort of coming forward with that story for the first time. So things that were like, harder and more difficult and there was there was like much more emphasis on news in that job um and from there I went full on toward news and I worked for the San Francisco Chronicle for a year uh doing breaking news and that was to me unbearable but is probably more like what a typical newspaper job today would look like which is doing like three or four stories a day like a lot of a lot of stuff for online, a lot, like just very fast. Um, and so I, I really didn't like that. And I, I much preferred the kind of work I was doing when I was at the globe and also at the times, like both in terms of content, like I'm much more interested in art than crime. Um, but also in terms of, you know, I like to have time to work on things. I like to be able to prioritize writing. I like to be able to breathe and think, and I'm not really driven by like, a news instinct, I would say. And so um, I've gone back now, I'm a freelancer and I do mostly sort of culture features and some technology writing also. And when you say arts desk, what, is that just a like an industry term for the arts yeah, culture like newspaper? Usually, usually the paper is broken up into a diff like different desks. So you'll have like the Metro desk, which will be like city news. And then the arts desk or the culture desk will be like, I guess when they say desk, I mean, they are referring to like in a newsroom, there's a cluster of desks that actually referring to like the section or the sections of the paper that kind of report to the same editors. It almost becomes like the department, right? Yeah, the, the, department. that works too. Interesting. Yeah. And so, yeah, you've been, I mean, you've written, you've contributed to the best publications really in the world. And I'm curious, in terms of getting into that club, I mean, you had the internship with Boston Globe, like you said, New York Times. And then since then, how exactly does that work? Like your relationship with these different papers uh, and writing for you know different ones at different times, how exactly does that whole freelance process work? Yeah, I mean, I guess I always think that like the biggest, the most significant thing that has ever happened in my career is that a bunch of editors on the arts desk at the Boston Globe, like read an application from me, somebody who had not had a previous real journalism internship or anything and sort of took a chance on me because of my writing. And that, you know, I got a bunch of what we would call clips. Like I wrote a bunch of stories that I could then send in um, to the New York Times the next summer. And again, like got very lucky and they saw something in my writing that they liked. And I had also sort of developed, I guess I kind of developed something of like a specialty then that was helpful. Like there weren't that many people in part because newspapers have cut back on a lot of their culture coverage. There weren't that many people who'd done a full internship in this before. And then once you sort of have stories to show people, um, like bylines at 
the New York Times or the Boston Globe, or you can kind of like leverage those into other ones. I mean, really you have to, so the way that it works freelancing now is like I come up with a, an idea and usually that involves some amount of like reporting beforehand. And I come up with what is called a pitch, which is like, here's how I see the story and here's why I think it would be good for your publication. And here's like kind of what I would need to do in terms of reporting, in terms of writing. And at the end of that, you kind of have a little paragraph where you say, if it's somebody that you've never worked with before, you say like, and by the way, I've written for the New York Times and the Boston Globe. And you can kind of, I mean, you're slightly inflating yourself in a way because a lot of people have written for the New York Times and the Boston Globe, but something about like pulling together a list of names of publications and then like slowly building on that, I think is really helpful professionally. And then I also think like journalism is not by any means like a meritocratic industry, but I do think you, you can very quickly show people what you've done before and say like, I did this story and you should hire me because I did that story. And it's kind of, um, I think that can be helpful for young people trying to break into it because it's very clear at least um, to editors that like what you have done, <laughs> you can't, it's, it's a little hard to like, I don't know. It's, I guess it's, it worked out for me that I had all this early experience that was very easily translatable. And that's one of the reasons I think I'm really glad I worked at newspapers starting out because I, a lot of people also go kind of a magazine route where they get a lot of editorial experience, but they may not have as much to like literally show people. Um, so that's why I always like when, when younger people ask me about how to break into it, I always say that newspaper internships are underrated. You're right. In, in most other sectors, when you're applying for something or you're trying to show that you've done this and that, a lot of it is how you frame it. Like I was working on this project at this company, but it's hard to know if you're the person on the other side, what exactly was done and you yeah. know, how much did you do versus just your team? Um, right. and yeah, you're always inflating it, right? Like I was part of a project that did this and this and this, but what did you do? And in your case, or in the case of that industry, I mean, you're, you're able to show, I wrote this and this is yeah. what I had to do. And I wrote these words. So <laughs> yeah, you, know, you can't, you can't like falsify that. Yeah. I think that that's, I mean, there definitely is, as I was sort of saying before, there's a little bit of inflating going on. Like you sell yourself as somebody who's like written for a bunch of places when maybe you've written like, you know, two short articles for the arts blog or whatever. But it is, I think something that I do like is the very tangible product and not just from a, from a career perspective, but I find it really satisfying to, you know, complete an article send it out into the world, have a bunch of other people be able to see it's, yeah, it is, it's extremely tangible. And when you come up with, so you describe the process, like coming up with the pitch, how exactly does that process work? Because you're, you're, you're coming up with this pitch and you're doing some of the work and, and you're thinking about it. And like you said, here's what I will have to do to execute this. But why are you sending that out like a splash to a bunch of publications and somebody picks it up or, or somebody says, I want you to do this piece for me or you go out with this would be a perfect piece for you know such and such publication or how does that work yeah i mean now i would say a good amount of the work that i do comes like from assignment so i have editors that i work with regularly and they'll say like recently they, somebody an editor reached out and said i want to do a story on the future of public space in response to the coronavirus which is not something that i like have you know a, a research background in or anything, but it's, I've worked with this editor before and she thought that I could write something interesting about it. So now I'm sort of working on that with her and that's very straightforward. Um, but especially when I was starting out and still now a lot, um, I have to kind of come up with an idea and that can happen in a lot of ways. I mean, sometimes I do get like public relations, people will pitch me things that are interesting, although the vast majority of the time, not really, but because I write about art a lot of it will be kind of exhibition based or I'll be like thinking about, I'll, I'll notice like one of the first freelance pieces that I did after I left the times, but for the, for the art section there was about a trend in the art world toward artists using cryptocurrency in their work. And I had just seen a few different, um, yeah, I just like seen it pop up a few times and I was like, this is kind of weird. And I 
I looked around. I mean, a big part of it is you have to like look around and see if somebody else has written this exact same story and nobody really had. So I got in touch with one of these artists, interviewed him, and then I approached my editor and I said, I think this is an interesting trend. I think this guy is a compelling character and I think it would be like a good story for for you specifically. Um, you know, sometimes you have to make the specifics case a little more heavily. Um, but if you're writing for like general interest newspapers, then it's usually just has to be like an interesting enough story that they'll write. You had a piece recently in the New York Times on the impact of coronavirus on museums. You, I, you know, not just in a financial sense, but the actual affecting the actual art itself. So maybe we could just dive into that a little bit for fun. Yeah. Um, that specific piece. I thought it was a wildly interesting thing. I hadn't Thanks. really occurred to me. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, this, that was the one, again, that, that one came to me by assignment, but I had been following pretty closely, like what was happening in the art world during coronavirus, the kind of unprecedented shutdowns of museums, which are, I think, going to have ramifications for many years, like for people who work in the industry, for cultural institutions really broadly, they're just not set up to sustain closures of any length of time, much like restaurants are not. Um, but especially in the United States, where museums don't get a ton of government funding, um, it, it just is likely to be a disaster for a long time. And there had been a lot of reporting a lot of really good reporting about the short-term and speculative long-term economic impacts of exhibitions shutting down. But um, my editor was interested in something like a little more human because I think a lot of people don't really know the amount of work that goes into putting together a major museum show, like something, I guess what they, what they call it in the museum world would be like a blockbuster show. Like, I don't know, Andy Warhol at the Whitney, like. Mm -hmm. that takes like from start to finish like maybe eight years of planning but then on top of that you have people who've been working on the subject matter for many many decades who are kind of like creating a new narrative about an artist's life you know getting the research together restoring the pieces um and then the logistics of actually literally moving the art from one place to another um it yeah it's kind of mind-boggling when you think about it and this pandemic is maybe going to change change how reliant the museum world actually is on these kinds of shows because the expenses and logistics are insane in some ways but you know it also it makes for some amazing um kind of global collections of of art and and scholarship so ended up reaching out to a few different curators and um, museum staff who had worked on a, a number of shows that had announced that they would not be reopening after closing and ended up focusing on one that was in Ghent in Belgium, a medieval painter named Jan van Eyck. And this was sort of billed as like a once in a lifetime show uh, because so, so few of his works have survived. They've off, a lot of them have had really complicated histories. And they were sort of all together, kind of probably for the last time ever. And the show had to shut down halfway through. And so what what were the impacts of that on the people who worked on it and also for viewers who didn't get to see it? And then kind of more broadly, logistically, like how are they going to shut this show down? Yeah, it, it re I mean, reading it, I encourage everyone to check it out. Um, it was called When the Virus Came, Some Museum Curators Lost Years of Work. That was, I mean, it, it, that's such a creative thing to think about. And I love, I love pieces that go into a specific story. I don't know, in an area I would never normally think about and, and then having the broader implications around that. And, you know, it's so timely. Uh, I don't know. I, I love that. That was awesome. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad you liked it. Yeah. I mean, what you said, I think I, I write about like art and the art world, which um, is not necessarily like the broadest general interest topic, or it can be, it can just be like a really insular world. And so I am interested generally in finding kind of more human angles or more like general interest ways of writing about stuff that can be either pretty arcane or pretty academic in some other forms. 
Yeah. There was another piece called The Story of Amsterdam Told Through Its Trash. Oh. Just thought, I mean, just even that title just hits you like a brick because it's just such a brilliant thought. But there was that subway, right, that they were constructing and started finding trash from, you had this sentence, uh, they're trash, but they're Renaissance trash and prehistoric trash and just barely retro trash. And taken together, the objects paint a material picture of the port city over centuries. What, what was that whole situation and how do you think to write about that? Yeah, that was that was amazing. I mean, that was one of the first pieces I wrote like from Europe when I was first kind of coming back and forth here. I just read about the project and I thought it was fascinating. So basically, like if I remember correctly, it's it's Dutch law that when you do an excavation, you have to preserve all the artifacts that you find. Um, and that would not be the case in America. It like you wouldn't, I don't know, catalog the like old toothpaste that you find. But because of this law, um, they basically did like an archaeological survey of centuries of trash um, that had fallen into the canal. And it was really, really well done and really in depth. And so I kind of built a story around some of the objects um, and interviewed this kind of quirky and great archaeologist who was involved in the project. And that story was fun in part because it was um, one of the first like visual stories that I got to work on. Like it's very driven by photos and object matter. And I've since been able to do a lot of projects with the same team at the New York Times um, who I have helped me like think differently about formats for writing and you know, the ways that like visuals can actually like dictate a story rather than being just like a backdrop of them. Um, so that was fun too. Is there any story that you've come up with and basically any pitch and you thought this is a brilliant idea and then, you know, it gets rejected and it's never, you've never been able to, to write it? <laughs> I'm trying to think if there's... Uh... You're too it's successful. Too nice. so many pitches are being accepted. Definitely, I've given up on things before, but I think often I've ultimately been like, "Well, maybe this wasn't such a great idea." Um, there is one that I, I am actually probably going to write now. I'm really interested. I want to do like a series of stories on dead technologies, like old technologies, like the pager. I did write a story about the fax machine, um, the Minitel, which was like a pre-internet internet terminal that was in France in the 1970s. I'm just really interested in like using like sort of objects, but also specifically dead technology as a way into kind of understanding where we are with technology today. And like also maybe some paths that the internet or that life could have taken that it didn't because these technologies were abandoned um, and the, that is not a series that has an enormous market. <laughs> um, there's like absolutely no news peg. When you say news peg, is that meaning it doesn't have a connection to like timely, timely. news that's going on? Yeah, just a timely stuff. You do have to think a lot about that. And that's probably one of the most frustrating things I think about working in journalism is like coming up with an excuse to write about something interesting, which I think it's why there are so many stories that are like, the 10th anniversary of this album or whatever, because you like have to create a timeliness just to write about something interesting. And that frustrates me. Uh, you write about technology a lot too, like you just talked about, and you just came out with this piece on TikTok. Was that for, who was that for? Was that for The Guardian? The Guardian, yeah, that was a fun piece. That's awesome. Yeah, tell me about that. Why'd you want to write about that? And what was your take on it? Again, that was something that somebody asked me to write about. I'd seen both negative and positive commentary about the explosion of TikTok. For people who don't know, TikTok is this app, right? I mean, can you describe what it is? It's yeah, this kind of so modern. It's a short form video app. Basically, uh, people post 15 second videos of them doing stuff and a lot of it's like really weird like viral dances or like juggling tricks or like challenges of different kinds um and I think it's really popular the biggest demographic who uses it is between like I think it's 16 and 24 um so it's very very popular with high schoolers and there's a lot of like moralistic writing about how TikTok is terrible and ruining people's brains and then there's also a lot of like really celebratory writing that's like TikTok is 
amazing <laughs> and creative. And I, I kind of felt like there was something missing from the writing about it that kind of captured both positive and negative elements of it. I just was really struck by how bored people seemed on TikTok <laughs> that they had the time to be doing this. On the other hand, like that I have the time to be watching it and like enjoying it. Right. It's really interesting, like boredom um, that is at work there that I hadn't really seen commented on. Like clearly there's like a ton of work that goes into these videos and I don't know. I think there's something really charming and amazing about that. Like, I think you can really see like the weirdness of human creativity. <laughs> and I also think it's kind of messed up because I don't think that like teenagers or kids like get to be like deeply bored anymore because there's so much like stimulating content. And if you, if you go on the app, it's like really a deluge of just like bright colors and sounds. And like, you can't, I don't know. You, the, you don't get to really indulge your boredom without performing anymore, which I think is sad. So I kind of tried to get at both of those things. Yeah. And it totally resonates. I mean, I'm guilty of this too, right? I have this feeling of like, if I'm in line or something, I'm like, if I don't have my phone with me, it's right. like the end of the world, you know, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, just, even yeah. though, even though all I want to do is mindlessly check email and Twitter and it doesn't have any, any value add at all for my life, yeah. but it's just compulsion, you know? Yeah. You had a quote in the uh, piece <laughs> that summarized that really well. Um, you said, TikToks are often compelling precisely because they capture the experience of isolation, the creative ingenuity that can come of it, the drive to entertain ourselves and others, the desire for a tenuous connection to a generalized world. And you also called it at a, a kind of eternal present. <laughs> I was like, that sums up the bells and whistles of TikTok perfectly. Oh, I'm glad you thought so. Yeah, I got to get off uh, social media. I, I mean, I thought it does feel like this inability to, like you said, some people saying they can't even get through a TV show. And I'm definitely guilty of watching a TV show and then noticing that I'm, I missed something because I was like on Twitter right. or something like that. And it's yeah. like, what the heck, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think like it's pretty clear to me that social media does bad things to our attention spans and like our brains in general. Um, I also think there are good things about it, um, both on kind of a macro level, like for political organizing or whatever. And I think it's brought me personally, like a lot of joy. And I, I don't, as a journalist, like Twitter is pretty important and has been, I think, really helpful to my career in kind of a weird way. Um, so I can't just be like totally down on it. But I would say net negative, probably, mm -hmm. on society. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's something we'll have to figure out. It actually seems to be coming up a lot in some of the conversations I'm having. It's tough. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so maybe we can shift gears a little bit from writing into reading and your studies. Because you have something on your, uh, on your website basically called like 2019 Reading Interview or yeah. something, right? I think. Was it 2019 in reading? Yeah, 2019 in reading. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so is this something that you do? Is this the first time you've done that? Or is it something yeah. you do every year where you kind of reflect on the previous year? Yeah, it was the first time I, I did it. And I was sort of surprised by like the response that I got to it from people because there's a, there's a website called The Millions, which publishes sort of a version of what I did, like, a, you know, different writers kind of going through some things, at least a few things that they've read over the course of the year that have like moved them or been interesting to them. And I just wanted to kind of do a comprehensive look at the things I'd been reading, where I'd been reading them and pull it together into a piece. And I put it on my website and a lot of people really like responded to it in a way that I'm not necessarily used to with other kinds of pieces that I write. And I was really, I think I was heartened by that. It felt like a lot of people wanted to discuss reading with me, like the act of reading and also specific things I'd read and they had read and that they liked kind of hearing or seeing like a summary of a year through the lens of books. Um, mm -hmm. so it was a really like positive experience and I think I will probably do it again. You definitely should um, because yeah, I, 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 it resonated with me too. And I, I thought it was just really fun to read um, and go through. I think, 
part of that is because, yeah, you weave the books into what you were doing at the time. And, and I'm curious, how much does time and place affect your experience of a book in terms of you, you, you put it together for this piece in a way that was very captivating? Oh, you know, maybe you were in New York or you were here or there while you were reading this and what was going on in your life. And so it paints a nice vivid picture. But in your actual experience, do you feel your surroundings and the time and the context when you're reading something? Yeah, I think the timing matters a lot, um, both in terms of, you know, more maybe more obvious ways, like a book can really speak to you in a difficult time or resonate with you differently because of something else that you're focusing on in your life. I don't know. I like this spring, I've been thinking a lot about visual art and I've been really drawn to books about visual art. So there's, there's sort of that, I think more obvious sense in which like, I think the timing of when you read things really matters. But I also think like for me, a lot of my memories of reading are rooted in specific places. And sometimes I actually have a hard time remembering specifics of books that I read, but I can remember really specifically where I was reading them, you know, maybe how I was feeling when I was reading them. I'll have certain associations, like I have really strong associations last summer when I was, I was living in New York and I was living alone and I would like go to some restaurants around where I was living and I would get like dollar oysters and white wine and I would like read a book for like the whole evening and it was amazing. Um, Sounds and great. I have a really, really strong associations <laughs> with that and with the books that I was reading then, or I mean, different kinds of associations like this past fall when I was starting grad school, like it was really bleak and dark in England. And like, I just remember like reading so many pages and, being really drawn in, but also, I don't know, having this kind of new and intense experience with books and with being in this new place. Um, so I would say definitely like time and place are really important to me when I think about reading. Yeah, it's, it's true. It's, it's true of music too, right? It's true of so many things mm -hmm. you look back and you're just, it just comes back to you what you were doing at the time um, as this ability to bring up this kind of form of nostalgia, but uh, for that time. So I haven't really thought about that with books, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's very strong with music and like smell. Um, yeah. Smell's another one for sure. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. And you also have this, you read a lot clearly, uh, mm -hmm. which is great. And, and I think pretty much everyone feels that they should be reading more. But I think something that you also did, which made me feel better was you talk about not finishing books. Yeah. Because... <laughs> And it's totally, I don't know what it is, right? But it's, there's such a weird feeling of failure when you don't get through something. You say, oh man, I didn't, you know, I didn't accomplish that or whatever it might be. Right. And you kind of just openly say, you know what, this, I wasn't connecting with this and you just, you know, ditch it uh, when, when you want to, if there's a book that you, you don't want to finish and, you know, how, how do you have the confidence to do that? <laughs> well, I, think, I mean, I think it's, there are a lot of interesting things related to what you were saying when you started out. I think like a lot of us want to read more. And that was something I noticed when I was living in San Francisco and I was working this breaking news job and it, it didn't feel like I was in a particularly like intellectual climate. I don't know, whatever. I, I sort of made a goal to read more. I think I said I wanted to read like 40 books by the end of the year. And that goal like definitely actually pushed me to read more. And so in that sense, it was positive. Like I, I don't think I would have read quite so much if I hadn't been thinking about that. And I'm glad that I did. But I also think the flip side of that and all sort of metrics is that you end up then feeling guilty, pushing yourself to read things you don't want to read. And reading has like, I think, weird connotations of like, being an accomplishment in the way that other consumption of art doesn't, maybe because it requires so much time, maybe just because of lingering associations with intellectualism. And I think people feel really guilty if they are reading something, especially if it's something that maybe other people recommended to them and they don't like it and they don't want to keep going. And so they like force themselves to read a lot of things that they don't like. And I'm totally guilty of this. Um, but I, I think that if you can kind of liberate yourself from that, it'll become more pleasurable. But it's tricky because I do think that you should push yourself. And I, I try to push myself to read things. I think maybe especially like 
older books didn't naturally weren't naturally speaking to me when I was starting to push myself to read more and it takes a little while to like get into a Henry James novel or whatever <laughs> like that's work in a way that it's not to read other other books and so sometimes that work is worthwhile and sometimes it's not um and I think for me it's like probably sometime after like a hundred pages or so if something's just like not working for me or not pleasurable or if it's not I think something can be not pleasurable but still be feel like it's worth your time because you're thinking about interesting things or learning things that are interesting um but if you get to I don't know, hundred some pages and it's not doing that. I, I don't think there's any reason to keep going. <laughs> Lot, lots of books out there to read. That's a great, that's <laughs> a good rule of thumb. Uh, but I guess it does partially depend too on why you're reading it, right? Yeah. Like we're, we're working right now through Ulysses um, as, and it's just such a battle, but that's part of the book, right? Like that's inherently yeah. um, part of it is that it's going to be work. And so, and it's this great work of, of literature so we have to push through it because it's not really a question of, you know, are we enjoying every page or not? It's like, we want to do this in the broader context of, of making it a part of our lives, not of just getting like a thrill read, you know? Right. Right. And I think, I mean, I think that that can also work. I don't know. It can just work against you too. If you feel like you need to like read all the great works of literature. And I think it can make reading, I don't know, can make it seem like a chore, but I think it's useful as you were saying, to kind of approach some things, just knowing that inherently they're going to be work and that work is going to be part of the experience and not necessarily a bad part either. I think speak, like going back to attention spans, like I think reading is one of the few things that really like feels like it's restoring my attention span or like keeping it intact because I'm having to, to do mental work to focus. Yeah, I have a weird feeling sometimes where when I start reading, I'm thrilled that I'm reading mm. and afterwards I'm thrilled that I read <laughs> and especially like if I'm in, in the yeah. story, but sometimes I'll have this feeling of gearing up to it depends on the context, but you know, maybe it's very easy to say, well, I could spend the next hour reading or like watch stupid uh, TV, YouTube, something like that, mm. and just get caught up in thinking, well, I'll read later, I'll read tomorrow or something like that because everything else is so captivating. Yeah. But then once I start reading and I commit to it and say, well, let me just open up this pages, then I'm suddenly like, well, what, I knew I was going to enjoy this. Why was I hesitating to start? I don't know what that, that is. Running. <laughs> yes. Running is very similar. Yeah. It's like anything that I guess has a little bit of an element of, of work and challenge. Yeah. Um, but you know, you're going to get enjoyment once you get going. And then afterwards you feel great. Yeah. And then you're thrilled. Yeah. And you're just like, well, that was obviously something I should have done. I think meditation is the same way too. I don't meditate as much as I should, but it's something that like every time I, I get it back into that swing or, or think about it, I think, well, I, I knew on paper that meditation was going to be good for my well being and that I'd feel good, yeah. but gearing up to do it feels like I'm hesitating. And then, yeah. 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 So there's a few books that you highlighted specifically that are interesting and, mm -hmm. um, you, that you basically stood out to you, I think, throughout the year. Yeah. Um, maybe we can touch on those and that'll lead us into some of the stuff you're doing at Cambridge. But totally. I think the, can you talk a little bit about these couple books? So one of them is Milkman mm -hmm. by Anna Burns. Great book. <laughs> I forget how you described that. Yeah. But can you tell us about that book and, and why you liked it? Yeah. So that book came out, was it last? It was the year, it was 2018. It was kind of a surprise winner of the Man Booker Prize. Has She's a Northern Irish writer who's written several novels to some critical acclaim, but like not very much. And when she won the prize, she's, she basically said like, I'm really glad I'm going to be able to pay all my debts. Um, she had been like living on living with, with help from her local food bank and things for a long time. And so the, I think it struck me as an interesting novel by somebody who is not necessarily of the literary establishment. Um, and that was kind of why I was drawn to it, but it's an extremely literary novel. I think it's one of those books that actually like takes an amount of work um, just at a sentence level. It's kind of complex, but it, it's one that I I found actually pretty quickly, maybe like 40, 50 pages in, getting into the rhythm of her sentences. And it, it takes place during the Troubles. 
it's not explicitly named to be the Troubles or Belfast, but it pretty clearly is is that conflict and centers on centers on a girl who's kind of dealing with the trauma of conflict and also her personal life and her family life. She's being sort of strangely stalked by a member of a local paramilitary gang. And it's it's really complicated and I think gets it a lot of questions that interest me about like trauma and society and wartime. It's also very funny. Um, I think that was something that I felt like critics missed. Something about the the weird linguistic constructions, but also just the writing itself. There's a lot of like room for humor and kind of compassion for the character that I really enjoyed. I just I thought it was incredible and inventive and different from most things I read. Do you think that the subject matter of that connects with or maybe extra resonated with you because of the, the timing of it? It seemed like you were going through a bit of a difficult time with your with your family. Yeah. Um during that time my mom was having a knee like a knee surgery. Um uh, and I think it was yeah, there was something in the writing about family that I think resonated with me and like the the complexity of the family relationships where there was a lot of love and also a lot of uh, anger and in in her case, violence. And I think, I think definitely some of that was had to do with being at home. And I also think I became really interested in that historical period from reading that book and another book called Say Nothing by Patrick Radden Keefe. That's a nonfiction account of the troubles which I read almost around the same time and is a really great nonfiction book. I don't like tend to really love nonfiction, but I did love that book. And I think like reading them kind of almost simultaneously or back to back, I just had a really interesting like investment in this, in this historical period. Um, It came to like read a lot of other things about it and I think that it was nice to kind of have those two things in conversation, these those two books in conversation with each other. Really cool. And that was a, the Say Nothing one you consumed as an audiobook, right? Oh, yeah, I did. It was my first audiobook. Yeah, that's, that's so funny because I think that's another thing that people feel feels like they're cheating. It's like they're, they're consuming the same material, but some people are, uh, it doesn't feel like the same amount of work, you know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I get that. I think for me it feels harder to, to listen to an audiobook and like keep track of it in some ways. So I yeah, I think it's a weird thing to imagine that you're cheating by listening to books. I guess just cuz it's more passive. Like you're even though yeah. right there's the engagement required. Like you when you're reading yeah. the book, you you have to be doing that, but if there's an audiobook going on in the background, you could be running or doing this and that and there's that feeling of like you're doing two things. Well, I don't know. I, I, maybe it's that, but, but yeah, I love audiobooks. <laughs> Definitely. Um, yeah, they're great. Yeah. Especially when the uh, author reads it for me, that's yeah, I love huge. That. I also find it a lot easier for whatever reason with nonfiction than fiction. Um, like I feel like audiobooks are amazing if you want to like learn information and I have a harder time if I'm trying to like think about, plot and character I don't know sometimes I, I when I'm reading fiction I think I do a lot of rereading of passages and like moving around throughout the book and I I do that less with nonfiction, and so maybe that's why I find it a little easier mm-hmm. interesting well then maybe that's a good segue I don't know I'd love to dive deep honestly into what you're studying uh, yeah. at Cambridge and I think it would be a cool thing to kind of get into the weeds a little bit. And that's Edith Wharton. Yeah. So I I decided to go to grad school. It's not like a natural move for me, (laughs) like career wise or anything. I think I feel a little conflicted and have always felt conflicted about journalism, academia, and then like other kinds of writing. Um, And I think one of the really nice things about studying in England is that you can do a a humanities there are many more master's programs and and they're often only a year long and so I I kind of thought this year would be a good way for me to sample the world of academia and specifically 
like literary studies and English at a graduate level, which is like something I might want to pursue longer term, but I maybe don't know if I want to spend eight years doing it or whatever. (laughs) Um, So that was kind of how I ended up here. And I, you know, when I applied, I had to like put together a proposal for which authors or author I wanted to work on. And it was kind of complicated. I mean, I, I naturally might've gravitated more toward contemporary work, but I kept kind of coming back to the idea of working on, on Edith Wharton in part because I, I really like and enjoy her work, but I find it complicated and like not always there, there was, there were things about it that were compelling. And then there were things about it that maybe like repelled me, but in interesting ways, like the way that specifically the way that she deals with gender. And I'm writing my dissertation on this on houses and interior space in her books or in some of her novels. And there, that connects a, a lot with her ambivalence around gender and feminism and more broadly with like questions about the home and home space. But I think, yeah, I think just like the short answer to why her was that I kept coming back to it as something that interested me that I liked and also felt somewhat ambivalent about. Can you back up a little bit to give everyone a picture of, you know, why is she so important in kind of literary history and and, and all of that? Yeah. So she was an American writer working between like 1897 and the 1930s. She was like an upper class American, kind of like old, old New York, like before the Vanderbilts and everybody came in, like her family was like one of the old Dutch families in New York. And um, she was, yeah, she was like, came from a wealthy background and a very traditional one and kind of surprisingly somewhat like later in life, like in her thirties, she started writing novels to great both popular and critical acclaim. And there were like women, there were women writing around this time. So it's not like she totally broke the mold, but she did it. She was taken seriously in a way that was rare-ish for, for female authors um, at that time. And her most famous books are The House of Mirth, which she was one was her real first big success, um, and The Age of Innocence. Also Ethan Frome, which a lot of us probably read in high school, a lot of American students, kind of baffling to me, read Ethan Frome in high school, and that's like their only experience with her work. I definitely don't think it's her best work, but it is interesting. Yeah, and she was extremely prolific. Um, she wrote like a novel a year for like 30 years. That's not exact at all, but she she wrote maybe 20, in the 20s novels, I could probably Google this, but yeah, she's really prolific and ended up living most of her life in, or most of the, the latter half of her life in France. So she was kind of writing about America from a distance um, and was interested in themes of class or like upper class Americans and the changing social mores and class dynamics. Really interested in like doomed romances, particularly maybe between people of slightly different social classes or uh, marriages that couldn't work for financial reasons, sort of impossible affairs. Um, And then I think perennially really interested in questions of of gender and what it was like to be specifically an upper-class American woman. So she she was the first, I think I saw she was the first woman to win the Pulitzer Prize, right? And that was for the age of innocence yeah why didn't why didn't we read that one yeah i don't know it's a great movie <laughs> also if you want to dip in there's a great martin scorsese age of innocence highly recommend yeah i mean i think like that that story about her winning the pulitzer prize i think is kind of emblematically interesting actually the judges of the prize tried to give it to a book called main street that was a very sharp political critique of like American capitalism. 
and then the committee like overturned it and gave it to her instead because her book was seen as like upholding traditional values. Also, if you read Age of Innocence closely or even sort of surface level, I think it's really engaged with a lot of, it is, I think, a pretty sharp critique of society also. And so I think she's somebody who has been kind of consistently misread as like trying to uphold standards of an old society that she was writing about, but was actually much more engaged in critiquing them than she was initially given credit for, while at the same time being invested in a lot of their structures and, you know, for instance, like not being supportive of the women's suffrage movement um, and not being... I mean, feminism wasn't really a concept then, but like certainly not being a feminist by the standards of her day. Right. I mean, she's she's in the club, right? Because she's got she's in that yeah. high strata of society. Sure. Yeah. So there's a sense in which, right? Like that that wouldn't surprise me so much that she would kind of not be striving for so much change in that respect. Um, yeah, but and yet being like you said, maybe it sounds like being taken seriously, even if there were other writers being taken very seriously at that level. I think I saw she wrote initially, or at least wrote some works under a, a male pen name, which I imagine would have been like very common to do, or, or at least take a way to try to get ahead and be taken seriously. But then you know, all, all these major works, whatever, were published under her name. And yeah, to be able to be taken seriously like that enough to win Pulitzer Prize and, and be in that kind of echelon, yeah. um, that's just a huge feat in itself in, in the context. Yeah. And I think it's been like interesting. Her literary reception has been really interesting since then. I think she's constantly being sort of like reclaimed, <laughs> like was sort of reclaimed in the seventies by a lot of um, feminist literary critics. Uh, people are always like, quote unquote, like discovering her work. Um, but she's actually been really, really popular in a variety, like, you know, Age of Innocence and House of Mirth have basically never gone out of print. And so she's an interesting author who I think people are always trying to like re-recognize or sort of take as an example of their cause, um, but who has also remained like enduringly popular throughout it all. I think in all the ambivalence that she represents. Yeah, I could see that at, at maybe both sides trying to take them, take her kind of under their wing, right? Or under yeah, their movement. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah. And, and so you're, and you're specifically looking at, like you said, the physical spaces like in, in her work, which, um, I guess are, are kind of something that she's known for. And yeah. I, I was, for some reason, I was surprised to see that your uh, studies were so specific because I guess, but I guess that is how, um, these types of things work. But yeah, I, I guess, how, how did you go beyond saying, well, I'm not just going to look at Edith Wharton broadly, which is probably too big of a topic, but dive into, the specific stuff around, you know, physical spaces, interior spaces and things like that. Yeah. I mean, definitely like one of the, the things about studying English at a grad school level is like the level of specificity that you're working with is, is high. And that's probably one of the things I like least about it. Like I, like I love the classes and the kind of like general learning, but the actual honing in on really really specific topics can be I think particularly if I were to go on to do a PhD would would be challenging uh but I I was interested I've always been interested in the way that she writes about homes and houses she was actually her first published work was a book called the decoration of houses that was a decorating manual and she was like a well-known sort of maker of homes she has in Massachusetts has a house called the mount which is still there and very famous and beautiful and good spot for like weddings now. Um, but she, she was very interested in the home uh, as a, as a decorator and as a person who inhabited these beautiful houses. And so I was, I found the way that she kind of worked space into her novels really interesting. And maybe she foregrounds it more than other writers. And Again, I think I was like interested in her ambivalence around it. I, she creates like a lot of very beautiful and forbidding homes. And she kind of makes a lot of like she 
rights a lot of houses that really don't provide refuge. And so I'm interested in why that is. And I think it intersects a lot with, you know, facts from her own life, her own experiences, but also more generally with some of the complexity of like women trying to find refuge or places in the world at, at this, at this time. There's the other book you talked about reading, which I noticed a connection to this. And now I'm wondering if, if that was intentional, but um, which was housekeeping by Marilyn Robinson. Yeah, great. I think you, I guess you'd, you'd read it before um, in, in high school. Yeah. I read it at Exeter weirdly, which I feel was maybe like too young <laughs> um, in part, I think because it, it demands or references like a lot of context that we probably didn't have. I wrote my first grad school paper on, um, and it's, it's like really like densely biblical and really in conversation with like Thoreau. I just remember like not, I don't think our discussions like went all that well about the book <laughs> in high school. Like 15 year olds trying to grapple. <laughs> yeah. Right. I and mean, there's also a complicated thing at like Exeter's English curriculum, which was actually the same as Yale's English curriculum, which like was sort of anti-context, like tended to rely on kind of new critical theory about reading the book only as a book, which I think can really like foster a love of reading for its own sake and is like really great for teaching you close reading skills, but is also very one, one very particular way of reading that doesn't engage with historical and social context that I think is limited in a way. Um, it was limiting for, for talking about that book. I, I found it really limiting. Limiting in what way? It... So I guess like what Exeter's English department was based on, which was the same as Yale's English department, was a philosophy called the New Criticism, which is not new, has been around for a long time. Um, and like, I think really focuses you on the text. And it's really great. I think it teaches you really good skills for like reading sentences and figuring out how they work and dealing with plot and character. But a lot of books are also products of their time. Social circumstances are responding to contexts outside of them are responding to other books. Um, and I just like, don't think it was easy to read Faulkner and not think about like the antebellum South. I feel like that's not a, I don't know, that wasn't, that's, doesn't do justice to the book in some ways. But I mean, again, I think, I guess I think there are like multiple really valid ways of doing reading. And I think it, one of the things I've enjoyed in grad school, or like one of the things I wanted from grad school was also thinking about different ways you can apply contexts. like you know, I'm working on Edith Wharton. And so I'm also looking at a bunch of etiquette manuals from her time period and a bunch of primary documents from her own life and kind of bringing that into conversation with her books, I think is really useful. But again, it all comes back to like really basic skills that I did learn at Exeter of like first reading the book as a text. And I think I'm very biased toward that way of reading in part because I learned it so well there yeah I, I don't remember I mean I know the text was the focus in terms of like it became a joke right that you had to look at the text like if you had any statement to say at all it's like what's fine in the text <laughs> before you even open your mouth uh yeah but I don't really remember con the, the context part being so absent um yeah I mean it's just been so long even under yeah I also I just also approach this really differently and I like remember having conversations with teachers who felt anti some of this and it wasn't like some top-down philosophy I don't think but it felt present at least I, I came to see it as as part of the reason I think I like struggle with dealing in context sometimes do you think that's one of the main things you've you know like if we were to kind of summarize that like your takeaways from Exeter's English general experience, like looking now back, having gone through 
all kinds of education on it and, and in the working world and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. What, what is your basically reflection, well, if you will, on that? Yeah. I mean, I think first of all, yeah, like the close reading skills were, were invaluable and, and remain so. Um, but I also think like the, the personal narrative, <laughs> the much maligned personal narrative was really uh, great for me. I think it, I don't know. I think it, it just like taught me to write nonfiction in a way that I wouldn't have learned otherwise if I had just been writing like analytical essays. I think it taught me to like really love creative writing and particularly writing about myself and my life. So that was amazing. And I wouldn't have gotten that anywhere else, I don't think. And then also I, this wasn't really through English, but I worked for the Exonian and I was like, like, Mr. Golay like recruited me out of one of his history classes and I'd never had any interest in, <laughs> I'd never had any interest in journalism really. And I'd always thought, and I was somewhat correct that I like didn't really want to be doing like news work. But if it hadn't been for that, I probably wouldn't have really pursued journalism at all. So I feel like I owe a lot in that way to, to Exeter in terms of like shaping all my interests. Yeah, the personal narrative. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's always crazy to think about. In the Exonian, what a shout out. I know. I wonder how they're doing. Gosh, it's been so long. Yeah, that must that that was probably was that the first paper that you got to put on your um it's <laughs> going back to the concept of like here's where I've written. Was Exonian the yeah. first one on there for maybe like yeah, looking I'm for sure. the Boston Globe? Yeah, the, I mean, the Exonian was definitely my first byline. I think it was even specifically a story that I wrote about, like, hazing and Ewald. Oh, wow. Shout. Called out. <laughs> um, it, it was, like, soft hazing, I guess, was what, it, was what I was able to document in the story. Uh, but that was my first byline. Wow. The memories. Yeah. That's really hilarious. You know, we're coming up on, on quite a bit of time here. So maybe we're very much still in the middle of quarantine when we're recording this. Um, and there, there's a lot of unknowns um, and a lot going on in England too, actually, this week in the news. <laughs> we don't have to get into that. Um, but generally just, yeah, what, what are you looking forward to? What are you excited about? And, and what are your kind of plans going forward? Yeah, I, well, my yeah, my plan, it's so hard to think about the future in a way because it, it's there are so many unknowns. I try to stay off TikTok and <laughs> I'm excited, I would say, to to at least for once I finish my dissertation to go back like full time to freelancing and, and doing journalism for at least a few months. Um I think I haven't been able to give it very much attention of late. And I think there are like a lot of interesting stories right now. And there's a lot more that I think I wanna write specifically around like art and like the art world and coronavirus and the complexities of that that I just I don't really have like the time to fully dive into right now so I'm I'm excited about that I mean I'm apprehensive like journalism I don't know what it will be like when this podcast is released but it has been kind of collapsing like the whole media ecosystem so that's definitely there's some unknowns there but I'm also, I think I'm excited about maybe trying to take some time in the next year to work on some fiction writing, which is, I did some in college and high school, but really haven't since graduation. And so I think that, you know, especially if we are still in some kind of like quarantine situation, it would be a good use of time to, to kind of focus on that and just see what comes of it, because I think there might be some interesting things to, to write in a fictional way. Yeah. I'm waiting for the, the Sophie Higney book. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm waiting okay. for it. I got it on pre-order. Okay, I'll work on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. Um, that's exciting. And, and yeah, I think uh, we have to take advantage of the situation. So maybe, maybe, yeah, it would be a good time after your. Yeah, what about you? What are you looking forward to? Me, I don't know. I'm. Uh, <laughs> well, this is a, this is something. I mean, this is a fun uh, side project. Kind of like you said, it came out of the fact that uh, there's a little more time. But also, this actually, this project is something I wanted to do uh, for so long. But 
just hadn't really thought of a way to do it. And I just wanted mm-hmm. somebody to do it. Like I didn't even really want to do it. Yeah. Um, but I just, after reunion, I thought uh, there were so many cool conversations I was having and like reconnecting with people. And I thought, man, I just want to know what everyone's up to. Like I just, I almost just gave people calls, cold mm-hmm. calls. Cause I was like, this would be just cool to talk to people. And then something now about, I think quarantine and being at home a lot more, I was like, yeah. you know what, maybe just go for it and see if people find it valuable. And, and I mean, I certainly have already. I mean, I love yeah, this conversation to, to hear the others. Yeah. And, and it's just, it was great to reconnect too. So yeah. Thank you so much for, for taking your time uh, to do this from, from London. Um, thanks so much for, for asking me. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. All right. We'll talk again soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Sophie.